the American Cinematographer podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm joined by cinematographer Douglas Koch, CSC, who's here to talk about his work on David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Like for me, the biggest thing was this idea of humans produce all these plastics and things like that and garbage, and now we're going to eat them. You know, I mean, and to evolve to actually consume these, this toxic waste. And I thought that to me, I thought was the craziest, because I've, I've always really been into science fiction, but I've actually shot very little of it. But first, the August 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now, with a cover featuring the work of cinematographer Marcel Rev HCA for the HBO Max hit series Euphoria. Rev shares his creative approach to the series, which follows a group of teenagers as they struggle with high school drama and drug addiction, and breaks down his inventive use of 35mm and 16mm on the series' second season. Also in this issue, Armando Salas, ASC, details his approach to Amazon's action thriller series, The Terminal List, based on the Jack Carr novel and starring Chris Pratt. Salas shot four of the eight episodes in the first season. The article also includes insights from Ellen Curris, ASC, and Antoine Fuqua, who both directed for the series. The beloved stop-motion seashell Marcel recently made his feature debut in Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Cinematographers Bianca Klein and Eric Adkins talk about their collaboration and how they lit the one-inch-tall star. American Cinematographer shines its annual spotlight on nine rising stars of cinematography. The up-and-coming cinematographers for 2022 are Veronica Buza, Matthew Chuang ACS, Michael Cambio Fernandez, Jomo Frey, Catherine Goldschmidt, Isaiah Dante Lee, Christine Ng, Julia Swain, and Aaron G. Wesley. Details on their work can be found in the August issue and online at the American Cinematographer website. In Clubhouse news, Tom Richmond ASC passed away on July 29th at the age of 72. The influential cinematographer's feature credits include Stand and Deliver, Killing Zoe, Little Odessa, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Society member Jaron Prezant, director James Gray, and others share their memories of Tom in a special tribute at the ASC website. The ASC roster continues to expand with the addition of cinematographers Sam McCurdy, Autumn Duralda Arkapa, Wolfgang Held, and Blake McClure. You can learn more about the filmographies and backgrounds of our new members at theasc.com. Congratulations to everyone. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students with a solid working knowledge of cinematography who are seeking to build their skill set, this five-day seminar is taught in Los Angeles by top directors of photography. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques and instruction in current workflow practices. Specialized instruction may cover such subjects as commercial product lighting, the use of drones, and virtual production methods. In-person instruction takes place at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students and the final in-person sessions for 2022 will take place on September 12th through the 16th, October 17th through the 21st, and November 7th through the 11th. 
The November session will feature a focus on shooting motion picture film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now, it's time for the interview. Crimes of the Future is a dystopian science fiction drama set in an unspecified future where climate change and biotechnology have significantly advanced. While in humans, physical pain and susceptibility to infectious diseases has all but disappeared. Meanwhile, some humans have begun to evolve new internal organs with mysterious functions. One of these humans is Saul Tenser, played by Viggo Mortensen, a performance artist who, along with his partner Caprice, played by Leia Sado, takes advantage of his mutation by staging elaborate public surgeries to remove the presumably vestigial organs. When the leader of an underground cell whose members have modified their organs to digest toxic waste asks Tensor to perform a public autopsy, the artists are drawn into a game of intrigue involving anti-evolutionist government agents. Dark, weird, and sensual, Crimes of the Future marks director David Cronenberg's return to science fiction storytelling after a 23-year hiatus. But as cinematographer Douglas Koch CSC points out, his signature style remains the same. So Doug, uh, I read online that uh, you'd collaborated with David Cronenberg once before, but as an actor, he was acting in the 1998 film Last Night, which you shot for director Don McKellar. Yeah, no, it was hilarious. Like, I didn't even know that he acted back then. I thought that was really neat. And then, of course, he meets a grisly end in the film. So that was really, it was really cool standing over his, his you know, bloody corpse and everything. Oh, this is great. We just killed David Cronenberg. Amazing. So that was really fun. But um, it is, it's true. It was sort of a dream come true that I suddenly get this call and they're saying, Peter Shusitsky, who usually shoots David's movies for like, I think like the last 33 years or something, uh, was unable to do the film. And so they're looking around and I, it was just basically, it was just this sort of coincidence of personalities that people were involved that mentioned my name to him. And then he checked me out through, you know, sort of mutual director friends that I'd, I'd worked with. And it sort of just went that way, you know, and then next thing I know I was on a zoom call with them and uh, he's been around longer, obviously than I have, but I guess it would, you would say sort of because we're, we both done spent all our careers in Toronto and there was a sort of a bit of an overlap in the 80s. So we had a lot of people and stories and funny things in common. And so we had quite a hilarious uh, sort of, I guess it was supposed to be a job interview, but it was quite a funny call. <laughs> and that's cool. So aside from the personal connection, where did the two of you meet creatively? Well, I think what happened is, I mean, he had seen at that point in time, he had seen like this, I guess it was like the second to last feature film I'd done, which was called Through Black Spruce which was, uh, you know, quite, a, a, you know, sort of fairly serious film with a, like a sort of heavier tone to it, which was nice, which I think he really liked. And so he said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to this fellow. And then there's a film I had done more recently, which I think he wasn't quite as fond of stylistically because the whole film was handheld, which he's not into. So that was funny. So it was like, explain yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was sort of, and so I was saying, oh no, well, I just like to be flexible in whatever the film requires, you know? So it was, so it was funny. It was a funny meeting that way, but that that's where it was. And then we just started talking a little bit. And I guess I was, I had gone back and watched a number of his films before our interview. And yeah, it was just, you know, really interesting. You just pick up a lot of stuff and then it gave you a lot of common ground of things to talk about very quickly. 
which films did you go back and watch specifically? And what kinds of ideas about David's work did you pick up from them? Well, two of my favorites of his are Naked Lunch and Spider. I went back to them because I thought they might be sort of closer in tone maybe a bit to what this film might be like. And in both cases, what I really liked about them is I thought the way they were shot, I thought was like, were just amazing. And I don't know, it was the, for one thing I really loved about Spider was the use of wider lenses in close a lot of the time, uh, like uh, on the actors. And I just thought like, this is really amazing. Like the lens choices they're making are really great. And just the way you see Ray Fiennes, like, you totally read his expression, but you can also feel his body language and also feel the environment around you. Like it's like, seems like a really excellent balance. And then also the lighting was really interesting in a lot of the scenes in that too. And I'd remembered it that way, but I ended up when I watched it again, I realized like, oh, this is a really, really good movie just as a movie and a story. Like it's great. And I really enjoyed that. And then of course, Naked Lunch is really fun in many ways because it, it has this really interesting tone about it and it sort of shifts. It's like science fiction kind of, and then shifts and becomes a detective story. And it's really funny in parts and things and like freaky in other parts. So it just... I guess it was that kind of thing. And I thought these would be good sort of uh, role models or whatever. Was this before or after he read the script? Yeah. So I, re- yeah, no. So I got sent the script. They said, you know, here, read the script. And then in whatever, two days or whatever, you'll meet with David. So then I, in a panic went and like, you know, got, got my hands on all these movies and stuff and, uh, and sort of re- refreshed myself. I'd seen his, I'd seen all his recent films in order as they came out in cinemas, but some of these others I hadn't seen in, in a while. So it was really fun to go back. So having, spoken with David, what were his creative requirements for Crimes of the Future? Well, it was, yeah, it was very interesting because um, when I started talking to David about the style of the film, it was very funny. One of the first things he said is he says, I, I consider myself a real uh, classicist. He goes, I really enjoy like classic filmmaking. And he was, he was totally true to form in that. So when I said things like, for instance, I said, so I've noticed you never use anamorphic lenses, always spherical lenses. I think you're quite fond of Panavision from what I see in the you know, behind the scenes things. And he was like, yes, I don't actually really like the artifacts from uh, anamorphic lenses and what they do to things and the, you know, the barrel distortion, the wide lenses and things like that. He goes, no, I, I don't, I, I'm not into that. And then there were other interesting things that came up, like, uh, for instance, like I mentioned the use of atmosphere and he right away thought for like, just like half a second, then he thought, no, no, I don't want you to use any atmosphere anywhere. And he says, because although I know like a lot of the time you'll make the backgrounds will be very dark or whatever, but he says, I do want there to be a, a real sort of clarity to this. I don't want any, uh, you know, sort of smoky things, which is very ironic because a lot of the things when we were in prep back and forth, we would be recommending shows to each other. Oh, check this out. Check that out. A number of things he sent me that were from, from Europe actually had a lot of atmosphere in them. But um, I think there were other things about the lighting in them and stuff that he wanted to show me. But it was interesting because... It just felt a lot of the time that he was uh, deliberately avoiding anything that seemed kind of in any way sort of trendy or, you know, or, or contemporary, shall we say, in that, in that sort of sense that handheld in particular, I asked him about that. I said, oh, I don't remember seeing any handheld ever in your films. And he goes, no, I don't think you'll find any in any of them for any reason at all, even POVs. He goes, yeah, I'm just, I'm sort of just not into that. I don't like the camera to become so self-conscious. How did you go about uh, developing the look of the film? Well, I guess what happened was in our initial discussions, it was a, a part of it was complicated by the COVID thing. Because even though I obviously joined them in prep over in, in Athens, 
people were generally trying to stay apart from each other. If you sort of, if you just sort of didn't have to, and he was obviously very busy and prep, but we, it was just a lot of stuff by example. And so I would create these sort of visual references, obviously. I mean, this is, you know, what I'm, everybody really does, but it was really, that's sort of what I found myself doing was just showing him. It was like, you know, the old police lineup, you know, here's some interesting shots. Like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Is this too dark? And, you know, all of, all this kind of stuff and sort of playing with that. So it was just this sort of game of getting his reaction to stuff. And then, and then I don't know, I quickly realized like, oh yeah, I, I feel very much in line with him. He seems to like all the things that I show him. And then if there's something I'm showing him and there's something about it that he doesn't like, it turns out, yeah, that's probably something I wasn't so fond of. That's not why I was showing him the thing. So our tastes were very similar, I think. So we got on quite well that way. How about the pandemic? Um, what kind of effect did did that have on your production? Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, I got to I got to Athens in I think it was like about two thirds of the way through June of twenty 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 one. Oh, I can't remember what year it is now. We shot in twenty twenty one, so I showed up there in late later June, and then I had six weeks of prep. And yeah, they were super careful. Like, you know, like you were tested all the time if you were going into the production office and uh, yeah, it was pretty serious and they, they took it very seriously and uh, masked everywhere. You know, um, to this day, there's many crew people and, and production people that if I was to, from, from Athens, if I was to bump into them in the street, I don't think they'd recognize me and I wouldn't recognize them at first because you just saw them with masks on all the time. I mean, it was really, yeah, it was, you know, it was taken very seriously. Why did you make this movie in Athens, let's say, as opposed to Toronto? Well, it's strangely, the reason that initially Greece was suggested was actually financial because they had the most uh, generous uh, tax credits, maybe like in the world, I think, is what they said at one time. And so, of course, David at first went, "Mm, I wonder about this. This is obviously long before I was involved, but this is what I was told. And then and that he sort of at first was like, okay. And then he actually was shown a few films that had recently been made in Athens. And when he saw the films, he looked at it and he says, oh yes, I can definitely make this film there. Like this place has this neat vibe to it and it looks really cool. And I think it was this neat combination of this, all this sort of almost like classic older architecture and stuff. And then, but then it was combined with this, uh, lots of crazy graffiti everywhere. So it had this really neat sort of mixture of things like that. So I think it was more like, can you do the film here? Uh, because it makes it very affordable. And then and then once he saw it, he thought so. And then we just went crazy and embraced it. And right through, you know, with Carol Spear with the production design was able to really use it really, really well. All right. So this is a film about performance art, but it also feels um, more like an art film. Um, in in the performances and and the staging, then a lot of David's other work is this something the two of you talked about? Um, not so much. the The main thing was more that we were create going to be creating this sort of world and controlling it, and very limiting in what you sort of saw. So it was important that the world appeared dysfunctional, dystopian that that things didn't work. For instance, like you never see any cars, like there's not a lot of exterior, you know, exterior work anyways, but uh, you never see cars and then you see weird sort of high tech things. And then also at the same time, you see very, you know, sort of like old time or outdated anachronistic, seemingly anachronistic things. 
so that was the world that we were sort of out to create. And, and, and I think Athens really helped that because you, yeah, unless, unless you saw like Greek writing, which you do see sometimes, it really had this odd sense of place, I thought. And for me, what was really fun was I'd never done a film before where you literally are almost lighting like every shot. So the between the production design and the lighting, you actually sort of can create your own weird world, you know, and when you get that degree of control over it, it never turns ordinary, which I think was more the thing. And so the whole thing ha- is, is this odd performance, you know, in terms of the strange, uh, this sort of strange vibe of it. And then, and, and, and so for instance, like in the, like these, the main space where, where, uh, you know, Saul Tensor and Caprice do their, uh, their main performance near the beginning. And at the end, the autopsy of the boy, young boy, like, do you see this? Is this like theatrical? Like, is there like spotlighting? Like, has it been lit for them or by them? And he was like, he thought about it a little bit and he says, no, no, it shouldn't be like, you know, obviously you'll create contrasts and do things in the lighting, but it's up to you to sort of create this environment. But no, it shouldn't look like they have their act together in that sense. Like, you know what I mean? There's no, the world's not a functioning place. And so there were these, um, it said quite vividly in the script, like it really played up the fact that there were these screens and that the people who showed up at this sort of almost almost illicit performance were watching on these screens. And at one point, I think they were going to be bigger things. They were going to be fairly large screens and stuff like up above in this in this crazy old broken down space. So you wonder, like, how are you going to do that, all this kind of stuff? But then in the end, you realize, no, they sort of got more and more small. It's like, no, 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 let's make them little CRT, like old dusty kind of TVs. And that's what they sort of ended up being in the end, which I thought was kind of neat because it went from being this like very high tech thing to a very sort of low tech. So that was the kind of the world. The, The way you were just talking about it brings to mind like certain paintings where you would have a group of people lit by a single light source, and and sometimes it's even a medical subject, like um, in Rembrandt's Anatomy Lesson, or uh, what was the other one? The American Eakins, Thomas Eakins, and the Gross Clinic. Um, did you have any of this in mind uh, while you were lighting? It's interesting. No, I wouldn't say. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, it's a while since I've actually done that. Although I do love things like that. So, for instance, with the, this crazy, weird sarcophagus-like device that that Vigo gets operated on inside. Like I always knew that like, oh yeah, like Caprice will be, she'll be lit by the glow from this thing, which is another thing of like in these paintings, they were very obsessed with this idea of source light in that sense. Yes, this sort of carries over just the glow from this freaky machine. So in that sense, it's like, yeah, I guess so. Like you're probably referencing these classical images and don't even know it. (laughs) You were talking about limiting what you can see in the frame. Can you elaborate on that? Again, I think what was important in the film was this sense of societies not sort of operating properly. So, for instance, there was like in the scenes that were done where he would meet the cope character, uh, Welkett Bungay's character, the cop, and he would meet him at this sort of ship graveyard at night. And it's funny because when you we went to visit the place at night, there was this gigantic like oil refinery complex off to the right when you face the sea. And of course, like when you, you know, you could stand in places and the ships would all be like in silhouette and there would be this amazing, uh, almost like Blade Runner-esque refinery sort of in the background. So as a cinematographer, you're like, you're tempted to go, oh, we'd be crazy not to use this. Like we, one of, one of the three scenes we have to do there, you could, you could stage it beautifully with them all in silhouette under these ship hulks with this thing there. But 
David looked at it and then he sort of went, it looks too functional though. You know what I mean? In our world, no, no, no. We don't want to see things like that. Like as tempting as it may be, our world's not functioning like that. And then of course you go, yeah, of course you're right. Exactly. That makes perfect sense. You wouldn't see that. And then even earlier on in the script, there was, um, Oh, in when you're in the when you're in the hotel room. Well, it says motel room, but it's really like a sort of a villa where the mother in the in the opening, the mother with her young boy, and it's described in the script at one point of how the mother's sitting there just blankly staring off into space, and the TV is running. And it actually mentions the TV light, and you go, well, there's the cue for the cinematographer, right? We can do some really cool stuff with the the moody glow from the TV, and I love that kind of sourcey stuff. Like it's it's really great. But then it's funny when I asked David about that and then he thought about it for a minute and then he said, no, no, because he says, because that implies that there's like broadcast TV functioning normally in this world. And in fact, we're not even going to see like a lot of people. And you'll notice that there's in the few times that you're sort of outside, you never really sort of see lots of background people and things. They'll, they'll be the audiences who have shown up for these performances and you might see in the laneways the crazy people who are doing the sort of cutting body cutting and stuff like that. I think that was really the, the sort of sense of exclusion was getting rid of things that, that just, that didn't fit in the world. And, 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 and in such a way that you wouldn't notice them. And some of them were almost out of necessity where, for instance, when Saul Tensor goes to see Dr. Necessitor and he's in this weird kind of uh, second story walk up kind of little, he has this little apartment there. It was an amazing building, but uh it was also in sort of quite a sort of a trendy area, you know, in a place that had that used to be really, you know, sort of low rent had become quite trendy in Athens. So when we were shooting his approach, we had to kind of figure out ways to shoot it where you didn't actually see the atmosphere wasn't ruined because there were sort of like bars and nightclubs all, all in this area. And so, again, by sort of exclusion, we really wanted to say, no, nope, we don't want to see hints of cars in the background. So to shoot his approach to the place looking down this laneway that he comes in, it was impossible to avoid seeing all sorts of activity, human activity and sort of normalcy. And so again, it's like, okay, so we'll track him against this wall laterally that's just full of crazy graffiti. And it was at night with some, you know, sort of contrasty lighting. As far as the surgeries, um, the performances go, what did you want people to take notice of? I mean, it's funny from my point of view, what made me laugh was how there, because there were these like surgical arms and, the people back in Toronto who'd made the arms had actually found these neat little endoscopic cameras for, for looking for stuff. I guess, you know, you drop your keys down a hole, you can put this thing in. And they were like really inexpensive. They didn't cost much at all. Probably ordered them from Amazon or something. And, um, and so they sort of initially put these things into these arms. And of course, right away, you're looking and going, Oh, I hadn't actually thought of this. Like David had mentioned make sure you got some macro lenses. We're going to get really close to the stuff, to the internal organs, and we're going to be right in there. So I had pictured our big camera a lot of time getting like right in there and really super intimate with them. But a lot of the time it was just in the end, it was like, no, no, let's use the actual crazy little cam thing that that, that we've got on there. And it was really neat too, because it's image quality looked like what it was. So it was perfect. And what I really enjoyed was like, it got really invasive because you're literally taking these things and like just sticking them right into the organs, like in between the organs and stuff. And it was really fun. And that was to me, some of the favorite stuff because we did like, there was a whole sort of half day of that kind of organ photography and things like that were in the, in the studio where we did that. And I didn't 
find this as gory or whatever as 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 some of his other films for sure there's no question about that so i found it quite fascinating and and they had like these you know the 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 brecken child had these different strange looking different colored organs with all these tattoos on them and i found it myself all quite fascinating and everything and and i certainly didn't really sort of found myself not shying away from it per se but uh i guess i was I was so involved in the photography that I didn't give a lot of the philosophy of a, a great deal of thought, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I can imagine that David is pretty specific about what he wants. Yeah, I mean, he always had very specific ideas about what moments he wanted to see. You know, like the like the the or the finally the or the hero organ being pulled out and plopped down in this like dish and things like that. So it's very specific things, but yeah, I think it was more. I was more obsessed with the the sort of the texture of the organs and how do they look and and do they look wet, you know, and, and it was more a kind of a a physical thing that way, I think. In a film that's ostensibly about inner beauty, what was your approach to the character's outward appearance? I think the unspoken thing was that he always expected the bodies to be sumptuous. The second performance you see, I think it's the second one, second or third where Caprice goes to see the woman who gets has like the, the slices in her face. It's like, you know, she's sort of laid out on this chaise and the surgeon is like, is basically slicing her like cheeks open and playing with the folds and these really unusual details. And then you're also going, yes. And then you're going to like sumptuously light her. Right, we're about halfway through the conversation, so let's get into the technical stuff. No, it's funny because like I, I'm so used to being asked more about real hardcore kind of you know photography, cinematography things. So it's funny when I'm asked things that have to do with the the themes of the film and stuff a lot of time because I'm sort of like going like because of all the films I've done, this is for sure the strangest. You know what I mean? Like, and it's, and it's, and you could argue it's about many things kind of, and mean, or means different pe people will take away different things from it. Like for me, the biggest thing was this idea of, oh yes, humans produce all these plastics and things like that and garbage and tons of this stuff. I mean, how many million metric tons of plastics must there be in the earth's biosphere? And now we're going to eat them, you know what I mean? And evolve to actually consume these, this toxic waste. And I thought that to me, I thought was, the craziest, because I've, I've always really been into science fiction, but I've actually shot very little of it. Well, one of the things I definitely want to talk about is uh, how the subject matter and the intersection of yours and David's creative ideas resulted in the choice of your camera and lenses. Yeah. When we when David and I first started talking, and I sort of segued into, you know, like cameras and lenses, and I, of course, I was like, do you like, like what about the Aerie Alexa and stuff? Because like, I wasn't sure exactly what he'd used on his last film, which had been, I think, eight years before. And he was right away, oh, yes, no, 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 I like that camera. And so I realized in talking to him and also in, in remembering what I'd seen in when I watched his films, that I thought, um, I don't think I need particularly shallow focus in this. And I said, I don't necessarily require that. And in fact, there may be times where I might, you know, need deeper focus anyways. And there was definitely a couple of times where David would look at a shot and say, can you hold both of them in focus? And you go, yeah, of course you can. Sure. Yeah. Just need to give me a couple of minutes or whatever. And so we would do that. Whereas I think over the last few years, 
so many people have been shooting so much stuff like wide open or near wide open that you become very used to. Uh, and, and focus pullers are very seamless, you know, so you, you don't even notice how shallow the focus is and that it's moving around all the time. Whereas to actually create more classic compositions where it's like, well, no, you're not going to be ping ponging back and forth. You definitely need to hold the people in focus. So knowing that I was not particularly interested in full frame, for instance, you just thought like, yeah, Super 35 will be, will be fine with this. I didn't foresee requiring anything that was sort of unusual in that way. And David was totally in line with that. There was at one point somebody, you know, sort of mentioned, uh, oh, we're not shooting 4K, you know, this kind of that silly argument. And so we sort of looked into it and it was like, it's very funny, actually. I showed David a um, graph I had found of that year's Cannes Film Festival, and it shows you what all the different films that were in competition that year were shot on. And it was like the vast, vast majority of them at the top were shot on like an Alexa Mini. You know, and then the second camera was like maybe like a Venice and that was four films or something, you know, in that sense. And that was a, a camera that both he and I were very familiar with and very comfortable with. And then with the lenses, just based on what he said, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to use the Zeiss Master Primes. I'm going to be in situations where I'm going to have to be wide open. There's going to be like sort of unlightable things that like in, there'll be a few night exteriors and things like that where that's necessary. And I just know I can totally rely on these things to function perfectly no matter what stop I'm using them at. And those choices for me were actually the easiest to make. Uh, and then uh, what else beyond that? The little bits of filtration, you know, used a tiny bit of uh, diffusion on things so that it's crisp and clear. But if we're getting closer on the actors, yeah, that I can soften it up a tiny bit. Yes, there's a, a quality to the optics that can't be matched by resolution. Well, yeah, I mean, for the clarity of it, I mean, the thing that the thing that I find ironic is I'm thinking going like, well, I remember shooting features, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. I, I mean, I think we were shooting them in 2K and it was just like, they look great. Like, I really didn't see the need for increased resolution. And in fact, I'm sure there'd be many actors and makeup artists and people who would say, no, stop. It's really, it's, you don't need to see us that sharply. Are you kidding me? Right. That. So I didn't sort of uh, feel that need. I mean, we were shooting, you know, I guess it would be, you know, it's like Airy Raw. So it's like, you know, we're getting the highest quality and performance out of the camera we can get. Uh, one of the things I did too, um, and, and it's the first time I'd actually done this on a, on a feature, was I, I derated the camera in terms of its sensitivity. So a lot of the film was shot at four and 500 ISO. And the reason that I did that was, uh, Vigo Mortensen's character, Saul Tenser, is dressed completely in black a lot of the time. And I just knew that there were going to be a lot of scenes where it was going to be sort of black on black on black. And I'd found that in sort of experimenting and testing that by deliberately overexposing a little bit, you get yourself up off the noise floor. And then when you go hunting in the color grade and saying, oh, can we get a little more separation of the blacks here? You actually have all this information to work with. And normally... You know, if you do that, if you were overexposing slightly like that, it's, you know, it, it can cost you on the, you know, on the highlight end, you know, it has to come from somewhere. But in this situation, this film, what was so interesting is everything was sort of under our control and lit. I was never really in situations where it was pushing the dynamic range of the camera at all. It was just, I, it was just sort of lit to however I wanted to do it. The other thing that was unusual too is, as I had mentioned before, when we were talking about how I loved Inspider, particularly, which was one of the bigger influences for me, I would I would say in talking to David about this, the approach I was I was really into 
was this use of wider lenses and close in a lot of the coverage. And it was funny, we ended up shooting like so much of the film on the 27. It became like this, it, it, like it, it actually became almost like a running joke. And that was fun too, because I think to some degree, it, it also does give it a certain consistency. Could you speak to how the quality of the 27 millimeter changes to, depending on its uh, proximity to the kind of shot that it is? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that's funny, I guess with the wire lens, you know, the further away you get, I find, you know, then then they obviously look less like wide angle lenses. I mean, they're really well corrected too, to say, unlike the wider focal lengths in anamorphic, which have like very large amounts of barrel distortion. But these lenses are super well corrected. So I find if you're keeping them sort of level and rectilinear to the scene, you know, they they don't really feel necessarily that wide. And it was the same thing too, when you got in closer, there was just these sort of nice working distances where if you get in, if you get in closer, than this yeah then the face starts to distort you know sort of too much and you go yeah it looks it looks kind of goofy but there was a really nice range with the 27 on super 35 i just loved the way you felt the actor's body language you saw their face nice and big and you still sensed where they were you know because a lot of time you know we're so used to you know in the past like shooting close-ups and mediums and things like on 50s or even in the old days like 85s and you realize a lot of time they, they just turn the background a mush or you're seeing a very selective shallow corridor background which there were times where that of course could be very handy if you had to cheat things or whatever it was i just thought it was really nice feeling the environment being aware of your environment all the time by using the wider lenses and close i thought worked really well so did the 27 you know become your go-to for all the close-ups Oh, absolutely. It became a real go-to. And it's funny too, because after I'd worked on this film, I was on some commercials and we put like the 40 and the 50 up and it would just look so flat to me. You know, having just finished the whole movie with, with like, with wider lenses. And it was sort of like, I very much fell in love with that aesthetic at that time when we were doing it. I just looked up the close focus distance for this lens in the 11th edition of the ASC manual. And it says, uh, it's 14 inches. No, you, well, certainly on the people, we would never be that close. I mean, it, it, it's funny, like each of them has that limit, you know? I mean, I mean, you can distort somebody on like a 40 if you bring, if you can get the thing close enough to them, you know, it'll, it'll start to bulge out, but because uh, it's all about just the relative distance, but it's also neat too, because it feels like you're in the conversation or that you're with them too, because I think like, just like intuitively people feel like they're in the middle of it, as opposed to voyeuristically watching it from a distance, which I think is important. What was your general approach to lighting? Well, it was neat because almost everything was totally under our control. So Carol Spear, the production designer, you know, she sort of went with what was there already in in a palette and there's you know there's lots of sort of creams and off whites and things because you're in athens but really distressed and stuff and she would really bring things down a lot and then um yeah very deliberate selective color things that were brought in and i found myself sometimes reacting to what i found there so for instance I love to say that athens is because it really is like it's it's a real sodium vapor city at night so that it's like high pressure sodium lights everywhere. So, which is really, you know, disappearing rapidly in, in North America and being replaced with a lot of LED stuff, but things like that. So that's at the tone. So a lot of our night stuff had that sort of warmth to it, I think. And then in the performance space, for instance, it's really interesting, the main performance space that Caprice and, uh, and Tensor characters do their thing in, it's, uh, I get, it's an old theater, 
And it was actually ironically converted. It was used, I think there's a film school there or something, but they but they used it as a cinema. And so the, the proscenium had this big screen in it, which they had to remove. And there were all these seats, like theater cinema seats in the middle section where they do their performance, which had to be removed and stuff. And when we were in there, there was like, there's there were these funny old wall sconces that were there. And the production designer, Carol, she she changed them into like what you see now. But we said, no, 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 we'll keep them like this low, warm tungsten. It's really neat because I'm looking for things that will give it interesting character, but not look like it's theatrically lit. And then and then hanging in behind, I guess there's like a sort of a gallery in behind uh, the sconces, which where the uh, some of the audience watches from in the performances. There were just these like open, they would be what you would call sort of a daylight compact fluorescent, which, of course, when you're in, in tungsten balance on your camera, they come out this like, you know, sort of harsh cyan. And I thought, oh, I really like this. And so just when I would take stills, I just took my inspiration from the place. And I said, okay, so well, we'll do it a little differently. So we put Nick's bulbs into the fixtures that Carol had hung in the back. And then we just played with differing degrees of like how much saturation and brightness to be put back there. And we sort of just did it that way. So in certain places, I would just kind of attempt to react to what I was kind of finding there and then basically kind of build on that with the color and the lighting. And then anytime you were interior at night, I would play up that sodium thing. So we would have like a, you know, custom sodium gel pack on tungsten. And we would just send that in through the windows and just to give hints of that sort of fiery world. Not that you, not that we were really outside in too many scenes at night. We were, but not a lot, but just play. So that was for me, that was just a sort of color thing. And beyond that, didn't, didn't really do much. We had like a, we had sort of a neutral, slightly colder night ambient thing that we use sometimes like in the ship graveyard. But for the most part, it was just determined by whatever the location inspired. What kinds of image adjustments were you making in the color grade? I would say, uh, I would describe it as saying continuing with the lighting work that we'd started on set, really, uh, which you're sort of always doing anyways. But I find that the color grading tools have become so unbelievably powerful now. Like, I mean, when I started, it was all, you know, when it was photochemical film, right? It was three printer lights, you know, that's the joke. And you go, well, you can control the overall color balance and the brightness, you know, make it darker, make it less green, make it warmer. That's it, you know? And, but now what I find really amazing is even when I'm shooting, I would be saying to myself, and then later on, I'm going to darken this thing down. So I'm actually lighting in the future, you know, but so it was neat that way. And I think because the lighting had this sort of, theatricalness about it everywhere, uh, you know, a strange kind of dingy, but almost theatrical sort of look, it was neat to be able to sort of continue that in the color grade and say, yeah, I, I really would have loved to have darkened this wall down across here, but there's no way to have done it practically at the time. And so what I thought was neat that way is you can, in fact, actually bend light and do magical lighting things that you actually could never really do on set with real light. Like you can't do that. But now with the powerful color grading tools that we have. Sometimes this is just as simple as, as floors, you know, like a lot of time I find the floors and scenes just are, you know, they just end up being kind of brighter than you wish they were. And it's very hard to control. A lot of time you have to light it toppy in the scene and that's where the excess light's going to go. And eh, the floor too bad it isn't darker, but a lot of time now it's like, it's a very easy thing to go in and kind of pull that down tastefully and people are unaware of it. And it really makes a huge difference. And uh, you know, in the photochemical days, it's like, wow, you, you know, you, you'd be stuck with what you shot really to a large degree. And so, you know, you really had to work harder and 
you spend more time. Whereas now I think that's part of the trick is knowing don't waste your time as a DP in terms of the lighting, because there's lighting you can actually do later on in the grade. And that's becoming kind of the expectation, right? That you should work faster on set because more can be done in post. That's the thing. I mean, what I find really interesting now too these days about color grading is that the style that's really sort of, I found has been adopted is that these top-notch colorists will go in there and they'll do tons of work when you're not around. So that when you come in with the director, you spend all your time like finessing and stuff, which is really wonderful because I remember in the old days, it was more like almost start from scratch. Whereas now they've really got it sort of figured out. I couldn't believe like how little time we actually spent in the color grade on this movie, like David and I with Bill, like we really spent all our time just finessing things. And there were a few things too, to be, to be played with and uh, that had to do with say merging skin tone between prosthetics and real skin and stuff like that. Uh, but I thought that was really amazing how they could sort of bring it together and make things more seamless. Where did you do your color grade and who was the colorist again? Yeah, Bill Forwarda, he's at uh, Company 3. He's one of the you know bigger labs here in Toronto. But I go back with Bill Forwarda. I go back with him like, oh my God, I can't believe it must be 25, 30 years or something like that. Bill used to be the king of music videos in Toronto. And back when I did a, like as a colorist, when I did a lot of music videos too. And then I guess probably in the last maybe 10 years, he's gotten into purely into uh, film and TV shows and stuff like that. And you said David was in the grade with you. He ca- Yeah, he would come in and um, yeah, we would just come in for a few hours at a time, really. It was sort of like, you know, Bill would uh, do a bunch of stuff based on our notes from the previous day, say. Then we would come in and we'd check it out. It was very smooth and, and easy. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you want people to know about the making of this film? Um, as a cinematographer, like it really is the dream project, something like this in terms of uh, when you get to work on something. And I guess you probably would say that like science fiction in particular is, is really the genre where this happens. But it's so unusual to be in a situation where you get as the cinematographer you almost get to control every every shot you do like it's really neat the fact that when you have very few day exteriors and then even when you do they're in very strange places that sort of disorder would disorient an audience when they see it you know like the opening shot where you see like this ship like half sunk in the water and then pulls back and there's a kid on the beach you're like where is this you know it's like when you have this thing going for you it's really, really neat. And you just, it's like the cinematographer's dream because it's all about lighting and composition and stuff. And, you know, if you think like, oh, you're shooting a film in New York, well, as soon as you step outside, you know, in Queens or the Bronx or in Manhattan, you step outside in daylight, you go, well, it, it is what it is to some degree. And so you can use the tools of cinematography to, you know, limit what's seen or use longer lenses or use really wide lenses or you you have all these things, but ultimately what you're doing is it's a sunny day in Manhattan. Like that's, it's just that reality. So that's what was really neat about this is that I'd never worked on something where it was so much sort of created at every level from the ground up. And the production designer creates this amazing, you know, these amazing sets for you to work in. And then then you get to light them in in this like sort of unusual sort of dingy way that's really neat. I don't know. It was just, it was just a really unique project in that way. Like unlike anything I'd ever done before. And David was really uh, the ultimate sort of Zen director. I've never, I mean, I've worked with a lot of experienced directors, but he for sure was by far the most calm. And he 
it was really neat how he just he come in with no preconceived notions about what we were going to shoot you know which which is really difficult for the art department and and maybe to us a little bit sometimes because you really could never say like oh we're not going to see over there we can put stuff there or to the art department oh don't bother dressing this we'll never see that so you never knew what what you were going to see but he'd come in he'd see what the actors wanted to do then we would formulate a plan from that and sort of proceed and and he would leave set he wouldn't hang out on set he would leave set but he would watch through a monitor the whole time what we were doing is we're dressing and lighting and so if there was something going in an odd direction or something he would just get on the walkie and say hey were you place planning to da -da -da -da? And go, oh yeah no or whatever and sort of proceed like that so it was neat so that when he come back to set it was always just like he was never like surprised by anything at all like he already knew what we were doing he'd come in we would rehearse and shoot it so it was really a wonderful shoot in terms of you know there were never any long days it was very it was very civilized and very pleasant and like really uh yeah just like a wonderful uh wonderful experience that was cinematographer douglas coke csc talking about his work on david cronenberg's crimes of the future this conversation forms the basis of a print story in the October 2022 issue of American Cinematographer magazine, which contains some more specific technical information. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and share it with your friends. You can follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos. And you can visit us at theasc.com for more content on the art and craft of cinematography, including Clubhouse Conversations. Our popular online program features leading cinematographers and other filmmakers discussing their creative process and collaborations in recent projects. The latest entries include Emmy Roundtable discussions with some of the cinematographers of HBO's Insecure, Barry, Winning Time, Euphoria, Hacks, Station Eleven, and The 100-Foot Wave. Delve into the Marvel Universe with discussions with Gregory Middleton, ASC, CSC, on his Emmy-nominated work for Moon Knight, and with Autumn Duralda Arkapaw, ASC, on her Emmy-nominated work for Loki. You'll also find cinematographer profiles, flashback stories where we reprint articles from vintage issues, more podcasts, new products and services, just about anything related to the art and craft of filmmaking. TheASC.com This episode was mixed by Rob Granis at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap.